Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right, welcome back. SI Boxing Podcast. We are loaded up this week. A lot going on in the boxing world. You got Jerron Ennis with a step-up fight against Sergey Lipinets. Joe Smith, he fights for a light heavyweight title this weekend. I want to look back to a Jamel Herring's win against Carl Frampton this past weekend. Dan Rayfield, longtime boxing writer, currently working over at BoxingScene.com and RingTV.com. He joins me to talk about that and much more. A little bit later on, Jamel Herring, the 130-pound champion. He drops in, and we talk about his big win over Frampton, why he prefers a fight against Oscar Valdez over Shakur Stevenson, and why he's willing to drop his belt to get it. After that, Jerron Ennis, welterweight contender. He has got that big fight against Lipinets. Talk to Jerron about his path to this point, what he thinks about some of his peers, like Ryan Garcia and Virgil Ortiz taking step-up fights, what the next big fight is for him, and really, is it possible we could see Ennis against Ortiz at some point before the end of 2022? I talked to him about that and much more. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, very easy way to support it. Get over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to the show. Ever been ringside and got blood on you? All the time. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was really embarrassing. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, a lot to get to in the world of boxing. At an interesting fight this past weekend. Several good ones coming up this weekend. Great time to catch up with my friend Dan Rayfield. It's a great job covering boxing for BoxingScene.com, RingTV.com. You can sign up for Dan's newsletter it's excellent, comes out uh, regularly, daily at least, and sometimes a little bit more. Whenever there's big news that comes out, check Dan out on Twitter, at DanRaphael1. Dan, what's up, man? Living the dream, Chris, and uh, you've been counting the moments down till we could do the podcast together. 
Oh, it is here, my friend. It is here once again. And before we get to the fights this weekend, and there are some good ones, I I think interesting for a couple of reasons, each one. Uh, Let's look back for a second at the 130-pound fight between Jamel Herring and Carl Frampton this past weekend. You know, during fight week, at different times, Frampton was considered a favorite. Odds makers at one point had Frampton as the favorite of that fight. (laughs) On fight night, looked entirely different. Jamel Herring was pretty much dominant throughout, dropped Frampton a couple of times before uh, the stoppage occurred in that seventh round. I guess, start with with uh, with that. Uh, how, what did you think of, of Herring's performance and how the fight played out? Well, I thought it was a six-round stoppage, but be that as it may. Uh, look, it was, a, it was a great performance. I think the reason that Carl was probably the favorite, and, you know, not to brag, but, I mean, I did pick Herring. I know a lot of people didn't necessarily do that. I was picking Herring pretty much all the way, no disrespect to Frampton. But I think the reason why Frampton was considered – the favorite in that fight is a couple of reasons. One, he has a bigger name. He's been a champion in two weight classes. He's had the much bigger fights and, and won uh, some of them. And uh, people also look at what happened with uh, Jamal Herring in his previous fight. Uh, and, and as the saying goes, in, more so maybe in boxing than just about any other sport, uh, you're only as good as your last fight. And he did not look that good in, in the Okendo fight that he had previously. Now, he won that fight, but it was a, it was a messy disqualification. He's, you know... A lot of people thought he kind of quit because of the, the the cut on his eye, even though it was ruled you know, from a headbutt and the opponent got disqualified. But I think people need to remember, first of all, you're not going to be brilliant every night, and he's still, whatever you say about it, he still won the fight. And two, uh, you know, I'm not to discount it, but he was coming off a bout of COVID-19, and that, that you know, surely diminished him a little bit, the same like it probably did with, say, Povetkin in his recent fight. I mean, it's it's not uh, an easy situation when you have that and you're just a few weeks removed uh, from coming back into a, you know, a, a very – you know, hard sport like boxing. Um, but I thought that Herring just looked absolutely tremendous. He used his height. He used his reach advantage. Took care of business in a big way. I agree with everything you said there. And I would add to it that, you know, one takeaway I had was weight classes matter. And, you know, Herring is a legitimate 130-pounder. Came down, you know, a couple of years ago from 135 to 130. He is a big, sturdy guy at that 130-pound weight limit, whereas Frampton was fighting really for the first time as a full-fledged 130-pounder. And you could see that in the ring. Frampton, yeah. to me, looked like 122-pounder coming up, and that was Frampton's best weight class, 122. Yeah, I was going uh, say... Herring, even, Herring's physicality was just uh, an overriding factor. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, even Frampton as a featherweight, he, you know, I know he won a world title in that weight class, and he fought a great matchup with Leo Santa Cruz, and you know, you ended up winning Fighter of the Year in 2016 mainly because of that victory. But I never really thought of him as like a legit, solid featherweight. Anyway, he was very good in the featherweight division. He got the wins to prove it. But I still always kind of thought of him as a 22 pounder. And uh, like you said, now he come all the way up to 130 against a guy that had come down from 135 with that reach, with that height. Um, you know, Jamel has done a great job. You know, by uh, switching his situation up. You know, he was with PBC for a while. Uh, that did not work out for him. He left on good terms and he joined up with the Bo Mac, Brian McIntyre uh, group, worked with Terrence Crawford and, you know, with their team. And, you know, I think that change of scenery and and um, the fact that people at top rank and, and McIntyre and Terrence Crawford, they believed in him. And, and that means something sometimes. I mean, you know, obviously boxing is a lot of it's physical, but a lot of it's mental also. And a fighter, if he has that confidence, you know, you, and you have the right trainer and the right promotional situation, you know, it can bring out the best in you. And I, I truly believe that Jamel Herring, who had a couple of, you know, not, you know, forgettable kind of losses against just regular kind of opponents. I believe that he, you know, was in the right situation 
and uh, and everybody around him and his team have gotten the most out of his ability. Yeah, it, it just shows the value in shaking things up sometimes. You know, he gets knocked out by Dennis Shafikov. He loses a fight to Ladarius Miller. It looks like, you know, he's in his early, th- almost mid-30s at that point. It looks like his career uh, is going towards opponent territory. And then he wins the championship against Ito. And now he's positioned himself uh, for a significant fight. So let's talk about that fight, Dan. Uh, in the aftermath of uh, defeating Carl Frampton, it was pretty clear what direction Jamel Herring wanted to go. He wanted a fight against Oscar Valdez. He clearly can get the fight against Oscar Valdez. Valdez and Herring are both promoted by top rank. That is a very makeable fight on that side of the street. The question will be, can he do it as the WBO's 130-pound title holder? In the immediate aftermath of defeating Frampton, the WBO reaffirmed its position that Herring had to defend his title, presumably against Shakur Stevenson if Shakur wins his fight in mid-June. How do you think this all plays out with Herring, Stevenson, Valdez, and that WBO title? I I would tend to believe that it's going to be a a title that's going to be vacated and that, you know, if he does in fact fight Oscar Valdez, it will just be for Valdez's WBC belt and the winner of Shakur's fight against uh, the fighter from South Africa in June will then win the vacant title. Now, at the moment, you know, that would be for the interim title. Shakur has already stepped aside to allow the Frampton and Herring fight, and he's in a hurry to get the title. So unless there's some kind of reason or offer or something that that is worthwhile for Stevenson and his side to allow another interim fight, um, I believe that the title will be there is? Do you think there is? Do you think there will be? You know, I really don't know about that. I mean, you can't under underestimate the fact that top rank works with both of them and so maybe they could, you know, sort of work out some kind of arrangement. But it certainly, if he does vacate the title and, and challenge Valdez, which is a good fight, belt or no belt, uh, in, in terms of Herring, you know, it's still going to be for, for the Valdez title. Um, it's not an unprecedented situation. There's been plenty of times I can think of where there's been a desire for a, a unification and for whatever reason, because the politics involved, the guy ended up giving up a belt. So it was only for the other fighter's title. And I can think of a couple of examples. When uh, Diego Corrales fought Floyd Mayweather, you know, it, it should have been a WBC-IBF unification at 130, same weight class. Uh, but but uh, Diego Corrales ended up giving up that title instead of a mandatory fight. You know, when Vernon Forrest fought against Sugar Shane Mosley, uh, should have been a unification fight, but he gave up the IBF title because he'd rather make like, you know, a million and a half or $2 million than 200000 against the Italian fighter Michelle Picciarillo, if I remember correctly. And there's, there's plenty of examples like that, that that you can go through where it just makes sense from the fan desire, from the, the, uh, certainly the TV uh, company that's going to show the fight, certainly from the purse point of view from the fighter, to just give up the title. I mean, you know, you, you know Herring, he won it. He's defended it a few times. Uh, there's no doubt that he's one of the top few guys in 130 pounds in the world. And, uh, you know, is anybody going to not tune in to see Herring fight Valdez just because it's not to unify the belts? You know, if you're a boxing fan, you know the deal. You know, Shakur was gonna, is going to go on, probably win uh, that title um, and become one of the top fighters out there. And, you know, Herring will go and make a lot of money against Valdez if they can make that happen. So, you know, would you like to see it for the unification? Of course. But in the end, does it really make that, make that big of a difference? I don't think so. I'd just like to see the fight. And uh, they still got a title at stake. And, look, Valdez is considered – you know, the champion, if you will, of that division at the moment anyway. So let's get it on. Uh, Look, we were just talking about a situation like this potentially unfolding 
in the Superfly division with Chocolatito and Juan Francisco Estrada. I mean, everybody wanted to see an immediate rematch, but there was the Sorung Visai mandatory for the WBC belt. Uh, I think if the WBC didn't get involved and take us into their land of make-believe with the franchise championship, we probably would have seen Estrada drop that WBC belt and just fight uh, Chocolatito for that WBA title in a fight that would have netted him significantly more money than a sore rung beside matchup. So I'm with you. I don't think that titles matter. Money matters. Prestige matters. And it's pretty clear Herring knows that the most money he can make is going up against Oscar Valdez right now. And Dan, if he happens to win that fight, at this point, I'm not putting anything past uh, Jamel Herring. If he wins that fight, a Shakur fight in 2022 is worth a lot more than it's worth right now. And I just don't, I just never got the feeling uh, from day one that that Herring, uh, they didn't want to mess around with Shakur Stevens. And, you know, look, no disrespect to Herring, but that's a bad fight for him. It's a bad fight for most, most guys in the 130-pound weight class, in my estimation. And so why mess around with that fight where, you know, you'll make a payday, but you can make certainly much more if you can fight Valdez. And I, I, I would suspect, honestly, that if he were to beat a Valdez, A, maybe there'd be a rematch on B, at that point, you know, Herring's already talked about wanting to move up to lightweight. You know, it's not like he makes 130 that easily. He's probably looking at the fact that if he, if he were to defeat Valdez, there might be, you know, a good offer for him to, to have a fight in the 135 weight class. So, you know, I don't think we're ever seeing him in the ring with Shakur Stevenson. I hope we see him in the ring with Oscar Valdez. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think that's the most likely scenario for later on uh, this year. All right, let's talk about the fights this weekend. Let's begin with the welterweight fight over on Showtime, where Jerron Ennis will... You know, take his step-up opportunity. We saw it with Ryan Garcia in January with Luke Campbell. We saw it in March with Virgil Ortiz and Maury Sooker. Now we're seeing it on some level with Jerron Ennis and Sergey Lipinets, the toughest opponent of Ennis's career, the biggest name he could potentially add on his resume. Let's start with Ennis's talent, Dan. You've been ranking prospects for a long time at ESPN and now at other outlets. Where... I mean, how good is Jerron Ennis? How, what would, how would you evaluate him as a prospect? Very simple. At the end of 2020, uh, uh, if I was still doing the Prospect of the Year Award for ESPN, which I'm not anymore, but I still did it on my own, uh, I, I considered Jerron Ennis, uh, who was in my mind, he was a candidate that could have been the Prospect of the Year in 2019. I had him as the Prospect of the Year at the end of 2020. He's a fantastic talent, comes from a boxing family been around the gyms in Philadelphia with, with, with so many top guys, you know, in terms of learning and sparring and, you know, just soaking it in, um, you know, he, he, he can do a lot of stuff and I've seen him fight many times. Uh, I've seen him in person. I've seen him on television. Um, he's the real deal. And I think that, you know, you mentioned the other two guys that stepped up uh, Virgil Ortiz, Ryan Garcia, you know, we're seeing all these guys who are in their early twenties, 21, 22, 23, a lot of them are taking those steps up. Now, they may not be fighting each other yet, and hopefully we'll get to that in some of these different weight classes, particularly at lightweight. But in terms of uh, Ennis, taking on Lipinets, who's you know a tough, solid, good veteran, a former title holder at 140, uh, you know that that's a legit step up. But I think Jaron Ennis is up to the task in a big way. You know, I think this kid's going all the way in my mind. What kind of test are you expecting Lipinets to give him? Because Lipinets is a fairly accomplished guy. He has a world championship at 140, as you said. He fought Mikey Garcia, lost unanimous decision, but bounced back from that with a terrific win over Lamont Peterson, um, you know, just about a year or so later. Uh, it, how big, you know, Lipinets, Dan, 
it seems like he wants to turn this fight into a brawl. I'm not so sure that's good for a guy that's been campaigning at 140 for a while, but he seems to want to turn this into a toe-to-toe slugfest with Jerron Ennis. What are you expecting from Lippinett? Well, that's one of the things about Ennis that makes him such an appealing prospect because he's got great boxing skills, but I think, you know, it's, and, and I hope it doesn't turn out this way, but as an example, I'm not saying they're the same fighter, but I think about Meldrick Taylor. Great Philadelphia fighter, Olympic gold medalist, 140-pound world champion. Uh, He was a brilliant, brilliant boxer, but he was a Philly guy in his heart. He liked to fight. So while he could box, he loved to get in there and mix it up, and that's what made him so fan-friendly and why everybody, you know, enjoyed watching his fights. Ennis reminds me a little bit like that because he's got the skills, but his mind says, let me get in there and fight the guy. So he, I think, is capable of doing both. If, if, if Lippinets wants to make it a, a, you know, a slugfest like that, it probably would behoove uh, Ennis to box a little bit more. But I wouldn't shock me if he, if he, if he got into that kind of fight, uh, you know, feeling like he can handle it. I, I, think, uh, I think whether it becomes a brawl or it becomes a boxing match, Jerron Ennis is going to handle Sergey Lippinets. I think he's going to do it pretty easily. I mean, I know that may sound crazy, but uh, I think Ennis wins big on, on, uh, on the weekend. Yeah, I think this is a great chance for him to not only win big, but look spectacular. Well, I'm not sure if, what Lipinets can do to win the fight, you know, other than land like the perfect shot. But I don't consider yeah. Lipinets to be this devastating one-punch knockout artist. Um, Dron Ennis' defense is sound, so I don't, I don't see him getting hit too clean, too flush, too often. And in terms of just their boxing abilities, I think Dron Ennis blows him away in the skill department and the speed department. So... I'm just not sure what category other than if you just land, you know, you know, you can, you know, you never can underrate them, underestimate the guy's heart either. So if it gets into that kind of brawl, we haven't seen Ennis, you know, in the crucible yet. And that's what Lippinets' job is to do on Saturday is to put Jaron Ennis in an uncomfortable position, put him in the crucible of that fight and see if he can, you know, outgut him, outheart him. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to have to be in a position where you're going to have to learn about Jaron Ennis's heart necessarily, because I think the skill department is so superior uh, to what what Lippinets brings to the table. I just, you know, I, I think we'll get a pretty good fight, but I think in the end we're all going to be raving about Jaron Ennis, and uh, you know, he's the next big thing in the welterweight division, a very talent-rich division. But uh, you know, he'll be making a big move with a win if he gets it on Saturday. Crucible. There you go. Throwing writer words out there. <laughs> that's what I am, man. <laughs> See if Sergio can spell that. Next time we uh, do a show together. I love it. Um, so you mentioned the, the talent-rich welterweight division, and it is one of the strongest in boxing. What's the big fight that you think is available to Jerron Ennis over the next, let's say, 12 months? As he, you know, he beats Sergey Lipinets. He will position himself pretty strongly in somebody's rankings. He certainly will be, you know, rising up in you know, marketability for sure. Uh, what's the big fight for Sergey Lipinets? That's a really good question because, you know, it's he's the kind of guy where I'm not sure the, the fighters with the belts are going to just give him a shot just to give him the shot because he's dangerous and he's not a big enough name where he's going to bring, you know, riches to the table. So he's the type of guy that's going to have to work himself into a mandatory spot, in my, my opinion. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that, that uh, you know, guys with titles, you know, are ducking him necessarily, but it's like, what's the point? So why, what, what's in it for Errol Spence to fight a, a, a Jerron Ennis? He's got two titles or, or, or Terrence Crawford at this point. Again, I'm not saying that they wouldn't fight him if the, if it was the right situation, 
But uh, so I don't think we're seeing him in a title fight at the, this point, unless, you know, a belt becomes vacant. So it's going to be up to his handlers to, to try to maneuver him into a, a mandatory to force one of the guys with the belts or perhaps for a vacant title to fight against him. Um, so as far as who else is out there that, that doesn't have a title, again, the top names, you think of Danny Garcia is going to want to fight him? I doubt it. Danny's, you know, looking to move up to 154. Uh, so to, when, to answer the question is that that's a good question. I, I really don't know the answer as far as, uh, you know, who the, who the big fight for him is. Uh, you have any ideas? Uh, I have a wishful thinking idea, okay. and that's Virgil Ortiz. But oh, if yeah, if you want to look at it like that, for sure. I mean, that would be that would be great. But you and I have been around long enough to know Correct. that it's highly unlikely that, that would happen because two years from now, that could be a pay per view mega fight. I mean, yeah. between these guys, um, you know. I mean, I'll throw this out there. You know, and it's not the first time this would have happened in the history of boxing where you want to measure against the other guy. When Maurice Hooker is ready to come back, does he get in the ring and, and take on a Jaron Ennis? You know, oh, I don't think so. Probably not. Not, but, not, you know, not the, for a while. If not, the money is right, you never know. I, I think because Maurice has got that second fight with Golden Boy in his contract, I think Maurice is earmarked for something. And look, I think you and I have both written this. Alexis Rocha seems like the most likely guy from maybe if he gets through Rocha and he's a free agent once again, uh, if the money's right. He could take on Jerron uh, Ennis. But I, I feel like Maurice deserves kind of a break. I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm racking my brains for fights that are doable, that make sense, that would be worth it for the opponent, that would be worth it for Ennis, that could bring Ennis, you know, still a decent name to improve his, I mean, his um, name recognition, I guess, with the boxing public. Um you know, that's why, you know, it's, it's a good problem to have when you have a kid with that much talent, you know, I'd rather have a guy like that where you struggle to find a good fight for him than a guy that, you know, is not that good. And maybe you could find him with a fight with anybody, but he's probably going to lose. So, you know, uh, you know, look, and this is just going to keep on doing his thing. Showtime likes him. They're putting him on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see him in a, in a, if, you know, he's got to win Saturday. It's not like I, it's not, I don't think that, um, you know, a lot of people, I think it's relatively an easy fight. I don't think a lot of people agree with me about that. But let's see what happens on Saturday, and we'll assess it on uh, Sunday morning. I think it could be an easy fight. I think it'll be a fun fight, however long it lasts. And that's good news for Jerron Ennis because he'll be market, more marketable after uh, a fight like this. All right, let's talk about the ESPN fight this <clears throat> weekend. That is Joe Smith against Maxime Vlasov. This fight was originally scheduled to take place this past month. Uh, there was an issue, of course, with Vlasov and COVID uh, going into that fight. It was postponed. Now here we are for the WBO light heavyweight title. Uh, most people listening to this podcast, Dan, know about Joe Smith. Like a very strong, durable, iron-fisted type of guy. When you look at Maxime Vlasov, are we looking at a tough fight here? Are we looking at a competitive fight for the light heavyweight title? It could be tough. And the reason it could be tough is because Vlasov, you know, he's not going to outpunch Joe Smith, in my opinion. Uh, I, I mean, there's not too many light heavyweights out there that could outpunch him. I mean, you know, other than maybe Better Biev, which might even be kind of even up in terms of the power. Um, but but Vlasov, you know, and Joe Smith, who I interviewed uh, not that long ago for a piece that I wrote for the Ring Magazine's website, uh, made the point, and he's absolutely right because I've seen Vlasov fight several times. He likes to move a bit. Um, it's not that he can't stand there and, and fight the guy, but he does like to use his legs and move around a little bit. So Joe might have to spend some time, at least in the early going, kind of hunting him down, maybe trying to fire to the body to tire him, you know, to, to, to get him to slow down a little bit. But Vlasov definitely uh, knows how to box and can move. So that could make it a little bit complicated. 
the other thing is that Vlasov has got a lot of experience. I mean, Joe Smith's fought all, a lot of top guys, but so has Vlasov. Maybe people in the United States don't know a whole lot about him or haven't heard a lot about him, but he did uh, go the distance in a fight against uh, Zerto Ramirez. Um, he didn't win, but it was a distance fight, and he didn't embarrass himself by any means. And the, 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 last, uh, the loss he had, uh, or one of the losses he had, was a fight where he went up in weight and challenged for one of the cruiserweight titles. And again, did not embarrass himself um, and was fighting a much bigger guy and now is coming back or has already come back down and had other fights in the, in the light heavyweight division. The one thing that does give me a little bit of pause, and I don't know what the situation was in terms of when Vlasov, when he was supposed to fight Joe back in February, uh, the reason that fight was postponed was because he was, he was COVID positive, like I think right before the weigh-in or at the weigh-in, and they had to cancel the fight and postpone it until Saturday. If he had symptoms, if he was ill, you know, again, like we talked about with uh, Povetkin and with uh, Jamel Herring, like you just don't know how that's going to impact him physically. So if he has remnants of that situation and he's not 100%, then it could be an easier fight than maybe we even think uh, for Joe Smith on Saturday. But Joe's the big favorite. You know, he's been talking about uh, getting that title and bringing it back to Long Island, New York. And top rank is already in, uh, you know, has no problem talking about matching him up. Joe Smith, that is, would better be up to unify three of the titles at the end of this year. They would probably do the, you know, when Bob Ehrman and I spoke about that, uh, his thought was if if, uh, if uh, Joe wins, you know, Aram, Joe, Joe DeGuardia, who's uh, the other promoter, uh, the longtime promoter for Joe Smith, they're on the same page. They're doing the better BF fight that Top Rank also promotes. That'll be later in the year. But if Vlasov wins, they would still do better BF against Vlasov. It just probably wouldn't be here in the United States. They would bring it overseas somewhere uh, where they can bring a site fee in. But, um, I don't think it's an easy fight, but I think it's a fight that Joe wins. Yeah, a um, couple things. One, you know, and you were on that media call with Joe Smith. I just, I mean, he really is a Rocky Balboa type story. Like, he's still working. And, like, he looks at this title as his way not to work a 9-to-5 labor job. Like, it's, it's wild. Like, he is a day-to-day labor. He's, this isn't, like just some shtick used to sell a fight that Joe Smith, the union worker, he's actually a union worker. He's actually doing this on he, the he, regulars. He's, he has his own, I don't know if he's doing the day labor like he once was where he's out there at the construction site with the, you know, the, the hammer and the nails and all that, but they, they have a tree business. And so he's like up yeah. in the trees, you know, sawing trees and cutting trees and that's hard, intense labor. And as you said, he does not want to do that for the rest of his life. Now, the one thing he did between the time the fight was postponed in February until now is, and, and this shows you the guy's dedication, you know, he, he was engaged and they had planned their wedding to take place in the week after the fight when it was supposed to be in February. Then the fight got postponed, took a couple of days off, had the wedding, took a few more days off, got right back in the gym. So, you know, he didn't go on a long, on a honeymoon. He didn't like, you know, spend time, you know, uh, uh, writing thank you notes for the, for the gifts and all that. He went right back to the gym and, uh, you know, they can celebrate, I guess, more after he wins the title, if he takes care of it on Saturday. But, you know, that's discipline. When you have a fight canceled like that, it takes so much out of you emotionally. You got to stay on weight. Uh, I'm sure he had a nice meal at the wedding. And, uh, and then, you know, right back to the gym. So he, he's not had that honeymoon or that, that time to rest or that vacation. Um, and he's been training for months because, you know, they weren't sure when the Vlasov fight was going to happen to begin with, even before it was scheduled uh, for February. So, you know, Joe's had his eye on this for a long time. It's a, it's a big deal for him. It's a second opportunity. One of the things I wrote about, uh, Chris, you know, he, he lost his first title shot against Bivol, who just completely outboxed him, took him apart, and really had easy, you know, an easy time with Joe. Um, and I give Joe... Uh, and, uh, and that whole team for understanding that 
they didn't have to make crazy wholesale changes, but they had to do a couple things and, 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 and refine his style, um, which is what his trainer Jerry did. And, uh, you know, it's worked because he's looked really good in his two fights since then against uh, uh, Storm Alvarez and, and, uh, and the other victory he had against, uh, whose name is Gibson, but another top guy, oh, Jesse Hart. Um, those mm-hmm. were two real solid victories for him. And, and uh, they, they were – he was not as, um, like, wild with his punches. They, they, they picked their shots much better, I felt like. And that was the thing that they talked about when I interviewed them. Um, and we'll see if he can do it against Vlasov, who was a little bit more of a mover than those other guys. Yeah, the lingering effects of COVID is a good point to make because I'm of the opinion, Dan, that the only way to beat Joe Smith is if you are in pristine condition and can outbox him for 12 rounds. Bivol's a good example. I don't think Joe Smith can ever beat Dimitri Bivol. They could fight 100 times and he would lose every single time because Bivol is just the worst possible matchup. He is... Uh, finely conditioned, an excellent boxer with just enough power to keep you from coming in, just crashing at him and going for one of those big knockouts. Uh, Anybody else, Joe Smith is in the game with. And I'm just not going to believe that Maxime Vlasov can last 12 rounds against this guy coming at him relentlessly until I actually see it. You make a good point that Vlasov has fought some good competition, maybe not necessarily as well known to us here stateside as some other fighters, but he has fought some solid competition. But Smith, to me, is an incredibly underrated fighter. I think he is going to go out there, apply relentless pressure, and in the 6th, 7th, 8th round, he's going to catch up to Vlasov. I think this has a lot of similarities to what we saw uh, with Smith against Aledia Alvarez. I think it's that type of fight uh, on Saturday. That would not, would not really surprise me at all. Um, you know, as far as the effects of uh, COVID-19, I'm just not sure there's two different things. You know, there are certain people that get COVID and don't have any, any symptoms. Maybe they lose their taste or sense of smell, but they don't, they're not sick. Um, and he might've just had a positive test. I'm not aware of whether he was ill or whether it was one of those deals where he was, uh, you know, asymptomatic, but just had it in his system. So if he did just had it in his system and wasn't sick, you know, maybe he'll be just fine. If he had it and is now, you know, spent some time recovering, uh, you know, it's hard enough to fight Joe Smith when you're perfect condition, uh, probably more so of a, of, a, of a difficult night if you uh, are a little diminished because you were sick. If Smith wins, are you expecting it to be difficult to make Smith better, BF, before the end of the year? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that fight will get made. You know, I mean, we don't know what the world's going to be like, but in terms of the boxing aspect of it, the business aspect of it, you know, uh, I don't think there'll be a problem. COVID could intervene or whatever else might intervene, an injury or this and that. But in terms of the ability to make the fight, you know, Joe Smith and his trainer are on board with it. Joe DeGuardi is on board with it. Bob Aram is on board with it. I also interviewed Arthur Betterbia prior to the fight against Adam Deans, and he said, absolutely, that's the fight he wants. He wants to win the other titles. So their side is on board with it. Um, top rank is involved with both fighters. Um, I don't think there'll be an issue. And as Bob Aram made the point, you know, as, as there are more people allowed in venues uh, as the year goes on, as more people become vaccinated against COVID-19, they're starting to open up in New York. Uh, that's a place where they would put the fight. There's a large Russian community. Obviously, Joe has a big fan base that would uh, want to come watch him from Long Island. Uh, that's the kind of fight that whatever the capacity is on the fight night is the kind of fight that could fill up Madison Square Garden to whatever the capacity level that they have. And uh, that's what they need to do a fight like that because it's expensive to have uh, another stream of revenue, which is tickets. And if they do the fight, you know, at the end of the year, I know, you know, let's say October, November, December, uh, by that time, as capacity improves, you know, there'll be money there. There'll be a ticket buying public. And uh, that's a big fight that, that, and this is never, this sometimes gets lost on people. You cannot underestimate 
how important it is when you're making this caliber of fight that the athletes want the bout. And at least in my conversations, and again, in, in the last two weeks, I've had extensive interviews with both Better Beav and with Joe Smith. The fights were discussed. They both said, absolutely, that's the fight they want. Yeah, it's a, definitely a Madison Square Garden type of fight. And I know the NBA is, is saying that, you know, come next season, they're expecting full arenas. If you can get a full arena for an NBA game, you can get a full arena for a boxing match. Hopefully that's how it plays out. Uh, in October, November. Uh, a couple things I want to run past you, Dan, before I let you go. Uh, you know, we're still kind of waiting for some resolution to the Fury-Joshua stuff. The reason I bring it up is because Tyson Fury took to social media and you know, did what Tyson Fury does and applied pressure to the promoters involved by, you know, listing some kind of countdown three days. He put that out there on Wednesday. I mean, you and I were talking off the air. We're not entirely sure that Tyson Fury's math is is accurate there, but... You know, look, this is what Fury does. He's putting pressure on the promoters to get a deal done. I mean, what do you think? Well, like, like he did on social media, he, he put up an image of clocks, tick-tock, 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 whatever, saying that, you know, and then he said he got three days. And what he was referencing, it seems to me, is that when, when Anthony Joshua and Tyson signed whatever paperwork they signed uh, where it was like a big deal that supposedly the fight was signed, um, what was lost on some people including some that reported about it was that, yeah, okay, fine. They signed the fight. But what, what is in the, in the paperwork was that that deal was contingent. Again, this is all laid out in whatever they signed from what everybody who's involved has said to me and others is that there was a 30 day time uh, uh, limit for which that the promoters had to secure a, I don't know the exact dollar figure, but basically like a nine figure site deal to bring to Joshua and to Fury that they would each individually have to sign off on to have the guarantee for the money for the site. And that that could be handled, then they would actually have a fight. And they'd obviously have to produce paperwork that says this is real and we have the money. So they had 30 days to do it. Well, that 30 days, as Tyson Fury was uh, was making mention of on his social media post, the, the time limit is nearly up. So again, like you and I were talking about off the air, is that we're not sure that Tyson's math is entirely correct because to my understanding, the paperwork was signed on Saturday, March 15th, they had 30 days, which would make it a month later. And he said three days when he posted it, whenever, like I think yesterday. And I think it was really still five days. But the point is, the time is running short for either Eddie Hearn or Frank Warren or, or Top Rank to bring a bona fide site deal to the table and get it squared away in time for them to say, we have a fight that we can put on, you know, presumably, uh, as as everybody has said, late June, early July. I just uh, I hope it gets done. You know, I think it's probably a good sign that we haven't heard that much from any of the promoters in the last you know few days, week. Even Eddie has really not been talking about it. And Eddie loves to talk about everything. Um, but I also saw a thing, uh, a video. I guess uh, John Fury, who was Tyson's father, uh, did an interview with I forget which outlet it was. So forgive me for not mentioning them. It was a, it was a British. Uh, um, I don't know if it was a TV channel or a YouTube channel, but uh, John Fury did an interview when he was making the point that they've got nothing. And he was making a, you know, kind of, kind of reading the riot act to, um, to, to Eddie Hearn about, about not delivering this on time that basically I believe the quote was, we have nothing. So it's all well and good to sign papers, but the papers that they signed, there's still things that the promoters had to deliver to make that be. So we see the fight. So, yeah, and look, Dan, I saw that that John Fury interview too. And look, Eddie Hearn and MTK, you know, they're running point on all this. But ultimately, 
isn't it on the fighters to decide if they're going to fight for X? I mean, there are offers on the table. They're just not the offers yet that Eddie Hearn and everyone are hoping for. I mean, I think, look, Eddie clearly believes that the longer you drag this out, the bigger the potential offer will be. And that makes some sense. I mean, COVID is slowly but surely starting to clear certain regions of the world. Look, he's already he's still talking or is starting to talk about the possibility of 100,000 in Wembley and that being uh, something that could uh, be be part of this, this equation. But if Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua want to fight, can't they just go to whoever it is and say, look, take the best offer. We'll fight for... If it's $75 million for a site fee, maybe we wanted 100, but we want the fight this bad, we'll take it. Isn't it ultimately on them? I think that's, that's a valid, uh, a valid uh, argument that you make. And let me tell you something. I know that they would like to have the fight in Wembley Stadium because it's a two, you know, the two British uh, heavyweight champions uh, you know, in an all-British undisputed heavyweight championship fight, which is you know, a huge deal, especially in, you know, in the U.K., but let me tell you something. You put 100,000 people in Wembley Stadium, that gate's still not going to be even remotely close to the 75 million or 100 million or whatever they could get out of you know, uh, the Middle East or some other exotic location because the ticket prices in the Wembley Stadium, they just would not be able to charge enough to get to that level. I mean, I'll give you the example. When, when, and, I, and you were there, I was there, when Vladimir Klitschko fought in Wembley Stadium and challenged Anthony Joshua for his titles in 2017, there was 90,000 people there. It was one of the most unbelievable scenes I've ever seen in my life going to boxing matches or anything else I've been to, other sports events or concerts. It was just incredible. Those 90,000 people produce, produced a gate of probably around 12 to 15 million, and I'm probably overestimating it. So 100,000, yeah, is 100,000 people. That's a lot. But the, the money is not – it pales. I mean, I use the example of if the, if the gate for, for Joshua – against Klitschko was in that, you know, 10 to $15 million range. And they had a hundred thousand. If you're the boxer, if you're the athlete who's getting paid on that, would you rather have a hundred thousand people in Wembley to do a gate of, like I said, 12, $15 million? Would you rather be, you know, triple G and Canelo or, or I'll give you a better example, Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather who fill up the MGM grand about 16,500 ish and the gates 75 million. I mean, you have a fraction of the number of people, but massive amounts more of money. So in one sense, you're right. You know, I don't, that's why I don't think the fight happens in Britain because the gate from the money standpoint, which seems so important to both of the athletes, uh, you know, is, gonna, is destined to happen in another location where they can bring in more money. How much money is enough? I mean, look, Tyson Fury and Joshua have already both made, you know, nine figures in their careers. So I'm not begrudging them. They have to go in there and get hit and do the damage and take the damage. But when is enough enough? Like at what point are you satisfied for life that you don't have to worry about the money? You know, I'm not telling them what to do, but you know, if you really want to make the legacy and that's what this fight is about, this is, this is the big kahuna. Uh, you know, maybe the money should be slightly secondary. I'm not saying it's not important, but at the end of the day, for what they've already made, if the deal is a hundred million, is your lifestyle going to change? Is anything about your life going to change if it's only like eighty? No, come on. No, I mean, look, it, it, you can you can argue both sides because I mean, there's a massive amount of money that they could get by waiting, but there are other reasons to take that fight sooner rather than later and go with with what you have and do it potentially in front of an enormous crowd and one of the most spectacular settings ever in British boxing history. A couple things, other things here. Uh, Connor Ben, 
the son of Nigel Ben. He fights this weekend. Um, let me put the question this way. You know, Connor Ben is still a bit of an unknown as a boxer. Had virtually no amateur background. Has won some fights. Undefeated as a pro. Shown decent power. This is probably a step-up-ish type of fight against Samuel Vargas, though I'm getting a little bit tired of hearing about all the opponents Vargas has faced. He's beaten none of them. So it's like, you know, great. He knocked down Amir Khan early in their fight. Fantastic that he lost a wide decision. Are you, put it this way, are you getting Tim Zhu-type vibes off of Conor Ben, where you see a contender in the son of a former great? Or are you getting Chavez Jr.? type of vibes off of Connor Ben, where, you know, maybe we might be looking at someone more pretender than contender. I think it's possible to, you know, you're, those are kind of like the opposite ends of the spectrum in, in today's uh, game. <laughs> they are. So I think that in the end, well, I mean, look, Chavez Jr. has become a, a, a joke, let's be honest. But at one time when he won the middleweight belt that he won, which was against a substandard opponent, so that that's a whole different conversation we'd have. But, you know, he ended up, having some solid fights against decent guys. He did beat, for example, an Andy Lee, a very good victory as, as one of the examples. But in terms of his overall totality of his career, it's been a disaster. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have, like you mentioned, Tim Zhu, who's coming off a, a win uh, just uh, about a week or so ago against Dennis Hogan. You know, and I've, I've been a fan of Tim Zhu since I first saw him fight at, you know, 7-0 maybe or something like that. I think that, that you know, he was on my, my most recent prospect list at the end of uh, – 2000 and I guess end of 2019, you know, a really outstanding prospect who has been looking good and getting better and better. I believe that, that Connor Ben is probably somewhere in between those two. You know, I don't get the, the, the zoo vibe yet because I think that zoo is definitely going to be a world champion, but I think he has a chance to maybe in the totality of a career, you know, be a more uh, consummate professional and quality fighter than a Chavez jr. Um, you know, you can say what you want about Vargas, Samuel Vargas' opponent that's going to be in the ring with him on Saturday. And, yes, he has lost when he stepped up, but it's been against the top guys. So it is, again, it's like a measuring stick. Yes, I know he lost those fights against Errol Spence and Danny Garcia and Amir Khan and, uh, you know, whoever. But you still want to see how does Ben perform against that level of guy because Vargas, whatever his failings are, he's very experienced. He knows what he's doing inside the ring. And if he goes in there and he gives Connor Ben a tough time, then maybe you sort of lean towards the Chavez end of the spectrum. But if, if Conor Ben goes in there and gets rid of him, you know, in impressive fashion or just, you know, completely shuts him down and wins, you know, a lopsided decision, you know, you give the kid credit for that. So my, my instinct says he needs more seasoning. He's not quite ready for the bigger names and, and taking those steps up just yet. That it's, it's still more of a, of a work in progress, but he's still a young guy. Uh, you know, give him maybe after the Vargas fight, you know, you might still want to think about giving him three or more fights and then make the big move. But uh, I like what I see so far, you know. I like what I said. Yeah, look, Vargas will bang with him. We know that from watching Vargas' fights. And look, if Conor Ben dispatches him in the way that Errol Spence did, the way Danny Garcia did, the way that Virgil Ortiz just did and stops him uh, during this fight, now maybe that'll sway my opinion on, uh, on Conor Ben. But right now, I think the jury is very much uh, still out. Last thing for you, Dan. Um, and I bring this up just kind of on the fly here because I was reading yet another quote from our good friend, uh, Eddie Hearn. I love to poke Eddie every so often about this because it. it Hold on. I feel like he doesn't love to poke Eddie Hearn. It's just it's funny because look, Eddie has been trying to make Devin Haney versus Ryan Garcia for a year now. I mean, basically forever. Like he promotes Devin Haney. He wants Haney to get sort of the shine off a win over Ryan Garcia. And Eddie's out there basically pleading with anyone to put pressure on Ryan Garcia to fight Devin Haney. I would say this first. 
and let me know if you agree with this. If Eddie was promoting Ryan Garcia, he would not be advising him to fight Devin Haney. Like, he just wouldn't. Like, it's not... Ryan Garcia, his popularity is on a different level than Devin Haney right now. And there is no real push to have Garcia fight Haney. Like, I think the boxing people think it's a great fight, but the masses at large, I don't think they know enough about it. And Haney, as I've said in recent broadcasts, like, just hasn't done enough to kind of push that fight more into the forefront. I just, you know, these these decisions and the way he fought against Yuriurkas Gamboa, to me, that doesn't create a mandate to see Haney versus Garcia. What do you think? I think that I totally understand what Eddie's trying to do because, you know, he's a promoter. He's, he's doing his job. You know, if you can get your guy some shine by mentioning the other guy, even if the fight doesn't happen, that's still a positive uh, for Devin Haney because then Eddie can say, look, you know, I've got the WBC lightweight champ and he's the interim champ and they should be fighting. And, you know, he doesn't want to take this, you know, fight and, uh, you know, and he can drum up interest like that. But I understand that, you know, Haney, he's a very talented fighter. I'm, I'm very high on him. I've, I've been watching him for a long time. You know, he's outstanding. But, uh, but a matchup between Garcia and Haney is not the one that the fans in the, you know, of boxing are demanding. There are, you know, other fights in the lightweight division that could involve other guys, whether it's a Tank Davis or it's a Tiafimo Lopez, the champ in there, uh, you know, or Ryan Garcia or Devin Haney. Uh, so I'd love to see the fight, but I understand it's it's not a huge money fight right now. Um, I think it's a very complicated fight for Ryan Garcia, even though I have the utmost re- respect uh, for for uh, for his talents as as well as Haney. I just think style wise, at this moment in time, um, you know, it's uh, it's 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 a real complicated, difficult fight, and the risk reward factor you have to take that into account. And right now it doesn't match up because the risk is, does not, is not outweighed by what the reward is for that fight. So I, I don't think that's going to happen right off the bat. Ryan Garcia has bigger names in his mind. Um, but look, they both have interesting fights coming up because Ryan has a fight with Javier Fortuna, who's maybe not the A-level contender, but he's a solid lightweight. He's been around for a while. You know, he's got a lot of experience, has some nice wins. Um, you know, and Haney's got the fight with Linares coming up, uh, after those fights, if both of them do what they're supposed to do and, and they win impressively, maybe then there'll be more of a drumbeat to see those guys fight. Because, look, it is a fight that can be forced by a sanctioning body uh, because of the WBC having uh, Haney as their, their champion and as uh, uh, Ryan as their interim champion. But Well, we both, we both know Ryan doesn't give a shit about that belt. No, understood. Case, but yeah, but yeah, they can at least exert some pressure and, you know, you never know. But, but Ryan's going to do what Ryan's going to do. And Ryan wants yeah. big fights and you know, title or no title, he's the bigger name. He's the bigger draw. You know, he's the one that, that put, you know, whatever, 12,000 in the arena in, uh, you know, in, uh, in Anaheim. Anaheim long ago. Yeah. So, you know, he, Haney may have the belt, but, you know, there's no doubt that in the promotion, in the, in the, in the fan, uh, fans out there that, that Garcia is the A side of that. And, uh, you know, so, so Eddie's doing what he's, what he's supposed, he's doing his job is what I can say. And, uh, you and, know, and look, look, there's Dan, like if, and you kind of touched on this. If Haney goes out and knocks out Jorge Linares, which is very doable. Whenever Jorge <laughs> Linares loses, he gets knocked out. Yeah. If he knocks out Jorge Linares and does it in like the third round of that fight, and then Garcia goes out and knocks out Fortuna, which is, again, very possible. Mm-hmm. I think then there will be some momentum. I disagree with Eddie as well when Eddie said a crowd doesn't really matter. Of course it does. Like, Ryan Garcia is emerging as a major ticket seller 
in Southern California. You put Ryan in Southern California against Devin Haney in November, December, it probably sells between twelve and 15,000 tickets. He's become that big a deal. So I think the pressure really, Dan, is more on Devin Haney. If he goes out and just wipes the mat over 12 rounds with Jorge Linares, there will be no buzz for a Ryan Garcia fight, no matter what Ryan does over the summer. But if he goes out there and flattens Linares and looks impressive... I think the public interest will start to build to a point where we are likely to see that fight before the end of the year. I'm not sure I would say likely, but it definitely will have a better chance of happening. But like you said, what Devin Haney has to do, um, well, I mean, he's got to win however it happens. But in a perfect world, it's not a 12-round sort of you know mechanical decision where he just outboxes the guy. It should be more like what he did to Antonio Moran, a fight yeah. that was near at the casino near where I live. Uh, where he knocked him out in, you know, four or five rounds or whatever it was. But he, he was I had it as the knockout of the year. I mean, just absolutely pummeled him in the knockout. It was a devastating knockout. So for all the people out there that think that Devin Haney is just a, you know, touch-and-go type of fighter that just box and move and, and outpoint you, out slick you, don't make that mistake. That dude can pre- – you know, if you if he hits you the right way, you're going, man. Devin Haney is should not be underestimated as a puncher. He may not be as dynamic a puncher as a Tiafimo or as a Tank Davis or even as Ryan. But, but uh, you know, trust me, Devin Haney can punch. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. I think he's got it within him. He's just got to be willing to take a risk or two during these fights. And if he does, uh, big things could be ahead for him at the end of the year. Uh, Dan, always great to talk to you, man. Check out Dan on Twitter, at DanRayfield1. Subscribe to his newsletter there. It's excellent. I read it every single day. And read Dan's stuff over at BoxingScenesAndRingTV.com. We'll see you at the next one, Dan. Look forward to it, Chris. Thanks, man. When we come back, my conversation with Jamel Herring. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because they ain't it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. 
Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. All right, Jamel Herring is here. 130-pound champion, still 130-pound champion after stopping Carl Frampton this past weekend. Uh, Let me start here, Jamel. What was more satisfying to you, winning the world title or defending it against the kind of opponent and on the kind of stage you defended it on? Oh, the latter. Defending it against the kind of um, the opponent that that, uh, Frampton was and what he had on his resume. And that's the reason why I wanted the, the, the fight. You know, I needed that marquee name. Um, I didn't want to be that, that guy that, yeah, I made some defenses, but who did I fight? Who did I beat? So that, that, that meant more. I mean, like I said, of course, winning that world championship, for the, you know, it obviously is a great feeling, but to defend it in a big fight where people actually thought you couldn't win to begin with, with, with is, is obviously the, the better feeling. Did you feel that over the last couple of weeks that, you know, whether it was the odds makers who initially had you as the underdog, uh, a lot of people in the media, you know, thought Frampton was the favorite. Did you, could you feel that? Um, like I can, I can, I seen it, but it didn't really bother me because I know me, you know, I, I know how hard I was working in camp. The main thing, it just, it just lit more of a fire and it, it just kept me on my P's and Q's like, Hey, you gotta be focused. You gotta go in there and take this fight more seriously than any fight you ever had because they're already you know, um have you already have your back against the wall they're already doubting you they're already ready to to sail you away and send you send you off so if anything it, it just it just made me sharper but it wasn't much so much as like pressure to where I was nervous or or, or doubting myself but just like I said it just made me more hungry I think one of the reasons that people were picking against you was the the Okendo fight and how it played out for you. Uh, what was the difference between you against Okendo and you against Carl Frampton? Um, me against Carl Frampton, I was healthier. I wasn't um, still feeling all those all, all the effects from the COVID situation. I mean, we just seen a recent story. I, it's funny. I just seen a story recently with um for Beckham when he basically said that his performance was due to him coming off COVID. And the way he looked, and I, like I said, it, it was no excuse. So that's that's why I didn't really, it didn't really bother me because I, I knew personally what was wrong right, with the whole kennel fight. Like I, my body just wasn't reacting well to anything. It was, and it was a rough fight on top of that. But I, I, I pretty much knew, and that's why it wasn't so much like, man, I had a bad performance. Oh, maybe I don't do so well against Frampton. Like no, I knew what was wrong, and I'm like, okay, once I once I get back to my old self. Then we'll see the real Jamel and how I look, and I'll go based off of that. Yeah, and, and look, you bring it up. Uh, Pavekin, you know, you could tell in that fight was not the same fighter. I think he got more of the benefit of the doubt than you did uh, in that right. fight. Maybe it was because you could visibly see 
Pavetkin not having the right equilibrium, not being able to uh, have any kind of punch resistance. I think people, I don't think people gave you the benefit of the doubt there when it came to the impact of COVID. I mean, yeah, but I look at it like this. If you really look at it, Chris, it kind of benefited me in the end. Because, you know, I remember in, um, in the friendly fight, I got cut similar fashion. And I know everyone was saying, here we go again. <laughs> you know, so you know that was coming up in people's minds. How will he react? Um, even when I, when I actually, for the first time yesterday, I watched the fight and just listened to, you know, Andre and Tim. They wanted to see, you know, how my, what my mental state was. So I, it was kind of like a blessing in, in disguise because, okay, I was in a similar situation. But you clearly seen I handled it a lot better with a better opponent that was, in my, in my opinion, was more hungrier than O'Kendall because, remember, Carl Frampton, the whole buildup around the fight was basically him becoming – Ireland's first three divisional world champion. So that was, you know, he was motivated. He had, he, he had something to, to really fight for. But, you know, I handled it well, and I proved that, you know, I still have a lot to offer. When you feel that cut above your eye, right around, I believe, the same place, what are you thinking? I, I went like, I saw, there it is. But um, I said, you know what, just stay calm, stay cool, because – more importantly, if I show that um, you know that I'm folding under the pressure, a smart fighter like Frampton, he's gonna he's gonna pick up on that. And I rather you know, at, you see, at the time I was boxing, I was boxing really well, and I wanted to keep that same composure to let like to make show that I wasn't bothered because I mean, common sense. If I see a fighter and he's cut and he, and he showed that he's bothered by it, I'm gonna jump on, I'm gonna jump over him as well. So my main thing was just basically just focusing on what was in front of me. And I, 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 for a second, I couldn't take my eye off the prize and, and, and give that window for Frampton to take fully advantage of the opportunity. You were clearly the stronger fighter in this matchup. I mean, could you feel that right away? I mean, this, as you guys started to go at it, you could just tell, I mean, Frampton is a 122 coming up to 130. You're a 135 coming down to 130. who's right. clearly right. Uh, comfortable at that weight. Could you feel your strength advantage in the ring? Um, I definitely, I definitely felt it, especially with the first. If you look back, I think it was like the first straight left hand to the body, and I seen how he reacted to it. And any fighter can tell you, they like no fighter likes getting hit to the body. You, we all come across fighters, even journeymen that have great chins. But if you if you really beat a fighter down to the body, that you'll you'll see how he react, how he really reacts to things. And I can see that just from. Um, you know, his body language that I, I was definitely the stronger guy. And remember, you know, this is a man that was, the whole buildup, he was like, I remember from the beginning when the fight being made, he was saying that he, he had the power in any round to basically stop me. He was the better fighter. He was the, there was no way, even from my side, I could be physically stronger than him. So, you know, he had a lot of confidence building inside, but, you know, it was my job to take that hurt from him in the very beginning. And, um, you, you can tell because, I mean, this is a guy who we've seen against, you know, my good friend McCreary, who was bigger than him also. And Carl was taking it to him round after round. So, and I knew he had in mind that, you know, they probably thought I wasn't, they, I wasn't that strong and that he could do a similar, you know, game plan like he did against McCreary. And I, like I said, I, I, just, I just believed in me and I knew that, I was just, you know, the better fighter overall in terms of um, he said he was faster than me. I think I, I think I got to him quicker with the punch. Um, I had I had more rhythm. 
my my footwork was, was better because there were times when he did try to press and I could easily change directions. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, I just want to prove that I was just better in all aspects and not just rely solely on, you know, my size, which people thought I was going to do, just rely on my, you know, my height and my reach and all, all my weight. No, I want to prove that I'm just a better fighter overall. Well, there's a lot of talk, too, coming in that, you know, Frampton's best way to succeed was to get on the inside against you, yet when he did get on the inside, you I mean, because you could hear everything in that empty arena, you could hear Bomax <laughs> screaming, rough him up, you know, like, you know, get physical with him. I mean, it seemed like you were just as comfortable as he was with an inside fight. Oh, yeah, because... Like I said, Chris, that, that was common sense. We knew his only advantage to potentially win the fight was for him to get on the inside. Even though he said it in plenty of interviews that he had the better jab and that he can easily just outbox me, I knew that wasn't the case. I'm like, maybe that, that's just him bluffing for me to try to bait into that. And But I, I knew that if, if he wanted to be successful, he had to basically get on the inside, and we worked for that. That's why we had the guys like Terrence Crawford come to camp because – Bud wasn't there to box with me. No, Bud was there to make it uneasy for me and make it re- really uncomfortable on, in, in the trenches and have those firefights. And I had to basically um, fight my way out to go back to my natural state, which is boxing, of course. But um, yeah, that, that's the reason why we, we brought guys in like Bud, because we want uh, for him to try to bully me around. And you've seen it. Frankly, try to bully me around, and I just wasn't having any part of it. It's nice when you can bring a pound-for-pound guy in just to, to get you that kind of work. It's, <laughs> it's hard to hard to get much better than that. You're you're in a position now, Jamel, where you know there, there's money out there for you. There's opportunity out there for you. You immediately started talking about Oscar Valdez, and I can see that being an excellent fight. I mean, Valdez right. coming off the biggest win of his career against Burchelt, you coming off the biggest win of your career. However. I'm not so sure you're going to be able to do it with that WBO title. Where do you where do you stand on that? If the WBO says Shakur Stevenson or vacate, and you still want to fight Valdez, what do you do? Um, let me just say, for starters, I just want to say you know I love and respect Paco and WBO because um, when I fought Ito for the title, I wasn't the mandatory, and they, and they still you know they allowed me to you know have that opening window to, to you know to live my dream and. Winning your first world title is always going to be is always going to be big to you, and they gave me that opportunity. So, you know, I always have a special heart, a special place in my heart for um the WBO and Paco. But I'm at a stage where you know I also want to fight for my own legacy, and even if I, I still see, I still even if they do take the title, I still see the Valdez fight still outweighs more because, um, Chris, like, it, it we could potentially fight for the lineal championship. Every world champion. We live in an era of boxing where even I've seen um, champions with multiple titles, um, unified champions. They're not the lineal. They're not considered the lineal champion. You know, every everyone can't have that covenant ring magazine title, which I really want. And it also, and still, it still gives me opportunity to fight for another major world title, which is the WBC title. So, I mean, if you weigh out the options, what would you do? I mean, would you would you fight for you know for your own legacy? And potentially, and I also feel that um, from the especially from the year, the rough year that I've had, and if I can go, still you know I put on a, an impressive win against Frampton and do this, a similar fashion with Oscar Valdez, that has to put me at least in the running or conversation of fighter of the year. And you know, in 2019, I was Ring Magazine's comeback fighter of the year. Just imagine two years later, I could be uh, becoming the fighter of the year. That's a lot for my career, and that will also create, at least start to create a conversation 
of me down the road being in the Hall of Fame myself, even this late in my career. So I, I look at I look at the, the latter and what is big for me in terms of my career overall. And I, like I said, I mean, no, I, I don't want to give up my title, but if I have to, you know, I, I'll respect the decision because at the same time, the, the WBO, um, you know, my boy Shakur, they've been patient. They have been patient because let's be honest, this fight was being postponed so many times. People thought it wasn't going to happen. People thought the fight was it was cursed, but you know, it, it, things happen for a reason. But I still was, you know, choose the Baptist fight over anything first. I think. Well, first, I think you've been hanging around Joe Tess too long with the lineal stuff. You love Joe Tess. Loves him some <laughs> lineal. Loves him some lineal talk. Uh, my man Joe Tess. Uh, I, look at another, I, thing, another thing, though, Chris. Look at think about it though. We live in an era where I got my good friend Errol Spence and, and Terrence Crawford. We've been dying to see that fight for the, what the last two, three something years now, mm-hmm. and we're nowhere close to getting that fight. But if we have a chance to see champion versus champion with, with me and Valdez. You have to go for it because we it, it, it's rough, you know. There's too many politics in, in with this side and who's on this side of the street. But if I have that window to, to, to make, if we can make a good fight that people want to see now, I'd rather go for that, you know. Because you, I, we, well, the way boxing goes today, like I was saying to somebody earlier, titles, as you can see, they switch hands like that now. Like when coming into 2021, you had me, JoJo Diaz, and Brichel. All with our belts intact. One thing or another, you know, JoJo he lost his title because of the whole the whole weight situation. Mm-hmm. But Chuck lost his title to Oscar Valdez in, in a fight that people actually gave Valdez less, less of a chance of winning than I than me beating you know Francis. So that boxing it changes that quickly. So if I, if I have that opportunity, I got to go for it. No, I, I agree and. Look, I mean, there's no reason that, you know, you, the winner of Valdez versus you couldn't fight Shakur in 2022. Like, that's, that's just another massive <laughs> fight. That's what I say. I, I always say, like, I love Shakur. But, um, you know, he has time on his side. We don't, you know, in terms of my situation, I don't have that. You know, I'm at the stage where, like, where Bernard Hopkins, 35 years old, his best friend came against Felix Trinidad. <laughs> you know, um, I look at guys that I, I, I admire, Winky Wright. It took him years to get those those big fights when he and when he got the opportunity he took it when he fought you know Shane Mosley who I who I admire also you know he took the opportunity so if I have the opportunity to fight another champion like when Winky Wright fought Shane when Shane was the champion well they both had titles but Shane you know he was the man why not I take advantage of that and and, and go fight another champion to to you know further you know, pad my own resume with, um, you know, champion, fighting champion, champion, champion. You know, and, and talking to you right now, Jamel, I mean, I remember you after the Okendo fight. You were pretty down. Like, you know, a lot of the right. stuff that was said and written, like it, it it, sort of took a toll on you mentally to the point where you were talking about maybe I'll retire, maybe Frampton will be my last fight. You seem reinvigorated right now. Maybe that's what a huge win will do for you, but you seem reinvigorated and not to say you're looking to fight into your 40s, but you seem to look, think you have, you have some good fights ahead of you. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely do. I definitely do because um, I just needed I just needed the rest. And, Chris, you know I'm active on social media, so you see I'm always a fan of the sport. And when I see all these other good fights, I'm like, man, I want to be a part of something big myself. And if I have the opportunity, and because, you know, I live, I live, I live right. I don't, I'm not out here. Like right now I'm home and I'm resting. I'm not out here partying in clubs, celebrating because of my big win. No, um, I'm already 
not even a week later, I'm already looking forward to the next big thing. You know, I always say to myself, I'll, I'll, I'll rest and celebrate when I'm done. But right now, I'm all about business. I want to take care of business. Um, I don't care for, I don't, like, you know me, Chris, I was willing to go to Belfast for this fight. I was willing to go to London for this fight because I, I still believe in me. Even with everything at the Okemo fight, you would think that I would have shied away from making that fight where people would probably thought it was the wrong idea or a dangerous fight for my career to I, I would have basically, you know, been handing my title to Frampton. But I, I, I knew what was going on with, with, in terms of the Okemo situation. But, yeah, and, and it showed. Like, I just believed in me, but... Now I'm looking at the, you know, I'm grateful. And I'm, I'm, I'm still excited about, you know, my, my huge victory, but I want more. There's more. Because um, I, I love when people always say, well, yeah, the fair thing was this, but what about, you know, you won't get away with this when I ask about this. Okay, then bring it on. Like, then let me get that, bro. let me get that fight. Because you know me, Chris, I love proving people wrong. And just like I did with the old chemistry mission, they thought I was done, and I proved them wrong there. I didn't um, with Frampton. The third Frampton had, because he had all the experience, it was going to be an easy night for Frampton, and he was going to show that I didn't belong in the same class as him. Um, love, I love the man to death, but you can pretty much say I retired the man, you know? And now what I said about is he brings a lot, but with me, that thing that really want, I really want is I can say that I took that oath. I, I can be the first man to take, you know, to take that undefeated record from him. So that's what also, you know, boosts me up for this fight. And I'm actually, you know, it doesn't take much for me to get ready to get back in the gym. Like once this little scar, or whatever heals up, send me back to camp. Just, just, just <laughs> let, me, let me go. Let me go. And like I said, even at my age, I still have that that fire and that hunger. Always the underdog, man. You wrote another chapter in your terrific story this past weekend over in Dubai. Congratulations, Jamel, and, and looking forward to whatever it is you got coming next. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you. Coming up next, my conversation with Jerron Ennis. All right, so this has already been the year of the step-up fight. In January, we had Ryan Garcia knocking out Luke Campbell. In March, it was Virgil Ortiz stopping Maurice Hooker. And on Saturday, Jerron Ennis will get his chance to make a statement when he faces Sergey Lipinets, the former 140-pound title holder. That's a fight that you can see live on Showtime. And Jerron joins me here on the show. So is is that a fair way to put it, Jerron? Like, this is kind of the the year of the step-up fight for, for you young, you know, future stars. Uh, I mean, you can see there, you know, everybody getting the opportunity to fight uh, great opponents, and and this is going to help us get to the next level. Is there any kind of, you know, natural competitiveness in you when you look at your peers with the younger guys, whether it is a Ryan Garcia or a Virgil Ortiz or anybody else kind of age 25 and under coming up the ranks? Uh, no, no, I just I focus on myself. I don't really worry about nobody else. I just focus on myself and how I'm a better myself and how me and my team going, you know, uh, prepare ourselves to get ready for our, our fight each and every time we go so out. What, so what's that been about then? You know, focusing on yourself, making, you know, getting yourself better. What's been the keys for that? Uh, just, you know, just staying locked in and, you know, working on things with, with my team. And, uh, you know, we're ready to rock and roll. Able to, and we can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I talk to people around you, it, it I hear a lot of the same thing. It's hard to get guys to fight you. It's hard to get guys uh, in the ring to face you. Have you noticed that? I mean, if, is it, has it been hard to get big fights? I mean, uh, most definitely it's been hard to get uh, big fights. And 
I finally got my opportunity, you know, to, uh, this Saturday. And I've been waiting for probably for about like two, two and a half years just to even get in the ring with a, a former world champion or a top 10 or a top five guy or elite elite guy, period. And, and this is my opportunity. And I can't wait to, uh, you know, do my thing and make my dreams come true and, and you know, boost my uh, my ratings up and and do it in a, a spectacular fashion on, on Saturday night. So take me back a little bit before we get to Lippinets. You grew up in Philadelphia, Fighting City. Uh, who did you grow up watching? Um, well, besides my brothers and uh, my dad, uh, everybody know I, I grew up watching Roy Jones and uh, Swinel, Pernell, uh Whitaker and Floyd. <clears throat> so I mean, very, very different. Well, at least Roy and Purnell, very different types of fighters. Uh, I mean, kind of similar. Uh, and some, and which in some way, because uh, younger Floyd, I mean, younger Rory was coming up. He was hard to hit. People couldn't really hit him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was using his feet very well. And, you know, CP has great uh, footwork. So uh, they kind of like similar, but different at the same time. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, well, Roy, I mean, the, the speed of Roy Jones in his day. I think I think even younger people even forget, and you clearly don't because you watched him, but I think people forget just how fast Roy Jones was and how good he was in the 1990s. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Roy, uh, Roy Jones' speed was, was, uh, was, was dominating. It was just incredible. And, you know, he just – his speed was power. He really had to really sit down on no punches. And it was the shots that the guys didn't see that knocked, you know, knocked – the guys out so you know it was always fun watching uh Roy Jones Jr you know I still watch him to this day <laughs> probably gonna watch him in a little bit so <laughs> do you feel like you've taken some of that you know and tried to incorporate that into your own game I mean will you say you're right like the punches people don't see are often the most impactful uh definitely the, the shots that they don't see is, is the ones that always knock them out or hurt them so you know and that's why that's the things I look for when I watch, you know, Roy Jones. See what shots that he uh, hit that guy with that he didn't see. Even with Floyd, the same thing with Floyd and Sweet Pea. You make a certain move and in the shot right there, and they don't see you. So you know, and you throw the shot, and next thing you know, they hurt. So you just got to be smart and uh, pick your shots. And and uh, and that's what I've been watching and stealing from those guys, and you know, stealing from my brothers and my dad too. So. Just it just been great to be able to watch those guys. So, so you mentioned your family, and you are from a fighting family with your brothers and your father. What what was it like growing up in that type of household? How how important and how big was boxing back then? Uh, I, I feel like boxing is bigger now than it was back then. But uh, it just it was always great. It was always a great vibe, and uh, being around my family, you know, get this uh, get, getting to see my my brothers spar top guys and fight top guys. And, uh, you know, it was uh, number three in the WBC. Derry Poulos was number three in the WBC, and Farad was, like, number two or, or number four in the IBF. So they was right there. Uh, they was contenders, and, you know, they was right there. And it was always great to see those guys, uh, see my brothers fight uh, in Philadelphia and, and on TV. And I was like, I just want to be like my brothers when I get older. And <laughs> and now, now I'm doing it. <laughs> was that – was watching your brothers – was that what made you want to get into boxing? I mean, I, I always was into boxing, but at, at one point I was boxing and playing basketball at, at the same time. And probably from when I was about like nine or 10 to about 13, and I 
I had stopped playing basketball and it wasn't, you know, as fun as it was for, for me as boxing was. And boxing always been fun, fun for me as long as I've been doing it. It never got boring or old with me. So it just, uh, once I stopped playing basketball and, and, you know, took boxing a little more serious, uh, it just was only up. And I was only, you know, that's when I started winning nationals and, uh, and going to, you know, Team USA, going to training camp and stuff like that. And, you know, and eventually turning pro and, you know, going 26 and 0 and being 24 knockouts and playing on Showtime. And so I benefit and got a lot of things from, you know, coming up and seeing a lot of things from my family and being in tournaments and stuff like that. How influential <clears throat> was your dad in your kind of making boxing your thing? Um, my dad was very, uh, influ- uh, he was, he was very influential in, uh, you know, getting me to box and stuff like that. But he, he never, uh, like forced me to box. He just, he he just let me have fun with it, and I, he still let me have fun with it to this day. So mm-hmm. he never forced it on me, and and, and all that. So that's that's what he did. So back in 2016, you came about as close as you can get to to making that Olympic team, losing that box off box off to Gary Antoine Russell. Uh, how tough was that moment for you to to not get to that Olympic level? I mean, it wasn't really tough because I already know they had they, they picks in already for mm-hmm. who they wanted to go to the Olympic team. Uh, I mean, to to the Olympics and stuff. So I mean, I, I really wasn't too worried about it. You know, it was perfect timing for me. Uh, I was I wound up turning pro that that same what well, the next probably like a couple months or so, and you know, just look where I'm at now, and, and you know, look where they at. So I don't I don't think I've ever met anyone that's had a good experience with. Olympic boxing. I, I don't. I, I feel like every experience is bad. It, I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's great to win it, you know, win a medal or, or, or any of any kind. Uh, it helped you in uh, turning pro and stuff like that. But mm. I feel like I feel like I always wanted to turn professional anyway. I really didn't want to go to the Olympics anyway. I just, you know, it was just an opportunity and it, uh, it presented itself. So I was trying to, you know, trying to take it and go to the next level with it. But you know things happen, and you know they they like to they like to rob. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, oh yeah. You know things happen, and you know uh, they like to take, you know take take fights from away from from kids when they coming up and uh, stuff like that. So you just gotta live with it. It's amateur boxing. Yeah. No, it, I I've heard so many stories just like that of of guys frustrated with with that whole system in general. But you did mention opportunity. I mean, did you struggle with that at first to to kind of get whether it's promoters or managers interested in to let them understand just exactly what kind of talent that you were? Uh, no, we had no problem. It was they was actually trying. A lot of guys were actually trying to make me turn pro when I was turning when I turned sixteen. Uh, he was trying to me turn pro and stuff like that. We had a lot of people coming at me and uh, trying to sign me and stuff like that. But you know, we just waited it out. Uh, took our time with it, and I mean, I'm kind of glad we waited it out because I'm in a great position right now. And you know, it's almost time for me, you know, be a world champion soon. Yeah, and and look, I don't know how you would have done at the Olympics. Uh, you're certainly talented, but it does seem to me like you have, you know, just a pro style, man. Like you, you see a lot of young guys that when they come out of the Olympic, like Teofimo Lopez is a great example. I watched him in Rio and got beat in the first round and he comes out mm-hmm. and, you know, performs incredibly well at the pro level. There are just some guys that you can tell are just pros. Do, do you feel like that's 
that's always been you that the pro style has been a better fit than the amateur style i mean yeah i always had a pro style because you know coming up that's all i used to see and that's all i used to train with was pros and i all i used to spar was pros so i developed a pro style early and you know um i never really threw too many punches a lot of punches as an amateur but i always my, my shots was always accurate and i always was like hurting hurting guys again eight count or stopping guys so you know, just, yeah, I, I definitely always had a pro style. And I, I actually, I, I did want to turn pro when I was like 16, but, I, you know, I, I waited it out. That <laughs> <laughs> might have been a little too early. You might have had to go down to Mexico yeah. or something to start doing uh, doing some of those fights. Um, when Sergey Lipinets is, when Sergey Lipinets is brought to you as an opponent, what's your reaction? Uh, thank you. <laughs> just thank you. And uh, I was excited. Cause I like I said before, I, I've been waiting for these type of fights forever. It's it been two years, maybe two and a half years, and uh, I finally got a guy that's a former world champion, and he's a, a top guy. So it's it's the it's the perfect time, and it's my time, and uh, I can't wait. And it's, it's just gonna be a great night on on Saturday night. Have you watched? Did you watch his fight against Peterson? Uh, no, nah, I didn't. I don't. I didn't watch his fight. I don't, don't really watch. You don't. This is what I, every time I read something about you, somebody asks you, like even the Virgil Ortiz fight. I was going to ask you about that later, but I read a clip where you're like, nah, I went to sleep. I was asleep for that fight. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm in camp, so I really don't really do too much. Uh, I come home, you know, I train two and three times a day. So I come home, you know, I'll be, I'll be tired. I get in the shower and lay down. And next thing you know, it's, it's time to do it again tomorrow. So, you know, it just... I don't really watch too much TV or anything. I, I play the game here and there while I'm in camp, but most of the time I'm sleep, getting my rest, you know, trying to be uh, well prepared for the next day. So do you come from that school of, you know, your opponent is your opponent, but if you do what you do well, you're going to be successful. I mean, Floyd kind of had that mentality a lot. Not that he ignored his opponent's strengths, but like he felt the best of him was better than the best of anybody else. Do you Do you have that same kind of mindset? And you you put it right like put it right in, in perfect words. Uh, just the same type of mindset. Uh, it's not that I, I I'm, I'm ignoring. It. It's just that not every fighter fights the same. Uh, just because he he fought a guy one way, don't mean he gonna fight me the same way. So like I always say, you gotta prefer yourself all the way around the board. And um, that's what we do. Uh, but I know he's gonna uh, be right in front of me and try to walk forward. And it's just gonna be a long night for him. You know. <laughs> I can't wait to put on this dominating crushing. I want to put on a punishing performance and then get the knockout later on. No, I'm I'm very into this fight for that reason because if Lipinets is what we saw against Mikey Garcia, what we saw against Lamont Peterson, he is going to be right there in front of you looking to to trade it out. And uh, as I see you smiling there, I'm not so sure that's the best uh, best strategy with with you so far. Um, th- this is obviously it's, it's a big fight, a big name uh, for you to to take on. Is there a path, do you think, for you to get into that welterweight title picture in the next, you know, eight months, 12 months, 16 months, whatever it is? Do you see that path? Uh, Definitely. I feel like this this the one right here. I said this this the one that's going to put me on to that next level. And, uh, and after I do my thing this Saturday and, and I do it in a, a spectacular fashion, and, uh, and, and I make a big statement to the welterweight division in the boxing world, period. And this will just boost my, you know, my my rating my rankings up uh just everything superstardom uh just maybe even towards a pay per view star one day so this this the this is this the time right here for me to 
show out, be dominant, and, uh, be great, and, uh, and come home with a big knockout. And, uh, and then it's on to bigger and better things. It's, you know, maybe a top three guy next next time I fight or a top five guy and then maybe a world title at the end of the year. So hopefully that's how I go. And, you know, it's, it's time. Do you feel like you're going to have to force your way into that title picture by mandatory? Because you're, I mean, look, your skill is is high level and I'm not so sure, you know, the the title holders, only three of them, maybe only two before the end of the year. Do you feel like it's gonna, you're going to have to force your way in as a mandatory? Uh, I mean, you could say that, but I feel like me winning this Saturday is no way they could deny me and it, it should put me right up there with the top of the top. And I feel like I should be right there. So, uh, but I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from, man. Uh, maybe I might have to be a mandatory. Uh, I don't think what a, one of the champions will just pick me and be like, oh, I'm going to fight him. <laughs> so uh, maybe I, I will have to be a mandatory, but I mean, I'm fine with that. You got to work your way up to the to be a world title uh, holder. So that's what I'm doing right now. And that's the start of it. All right, I'm going to ask you one more thing because I am ready, Jerron, to start beating the drum for Duran Ennis versus Virgil Ortiz. I'm ready, man. Like, I am ready. I, I know people are going to say, wait, let it marinate, all that bullshit, but I am ready for that fight to happen at some point in the next 18 months. Give it 18 months. Can we see Ennis versus Ortiz at some point before the end of 2022? Like I always say before, everybody always asks me this question, and I say the same thing. <laughs> all they got to do is call. <laughs> all they got to do is call, and... Uh, Ain't hard to find me, and you know I don't turn down nothing. <laughs> I feel like Virgil says the same thing though. Like he's he's the same kind of guy. Like I'm not turning down fights. I I love big fights. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, as he should. You know, he he's a a good becoming fighter, and uh, you know, but in the, the day, all they gotta do is call. And, you know, I'm one phone call away. <laughs> do you have any Do you have any history with him? No, I I don't have no history with him. I, I, no, yeah, none at all. No he amateur cross wraths or anything like that. No, I don't. I don't remember him from the amateurs or anything. But he just uh, popped out, out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And no. uh, I, yeah, <laughs> 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 I'm sure you get asked about that all the time. But I, I, I mean, after watching Virgil Ortiz from ringside you know, last month and watching you come up the ranks and looking forward again to what you're going to do or what you're attempting uh, to do on Saturday, I mean that that to me is like can't miss. Like just you can't miss with a fight like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that'd definitely be a great fight, and I can't wait to to make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I t- one phone call away. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see it. Love to see it. Well, Jerron, good luck on Saturday. Uh, you against Sergey Lipinets. You can watch that on Showtime. Uh, it's going to be a great fight, man. Looking forward to your, your future success and everything you got coming, man. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to my guests. As always, subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, you know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, Owen oh, Two Door Cinema Club.